Can a person redeemed by Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, lose his salvation? Is there such a thing as I'm saved no matter what? The perseverance of the saints does not teach that no matter how you live, you will be saved upon accepting Jesus as your Savior. Some people hold to a perverted understanding of once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved is biblical, but you've got to understand it correctly. You go to funerals and nobody goes to hell anymore. When was the last funeral that you went that people were weeping because that person was in hell? Nobody goes to hell anymore. The, the Christian life is never painted as Christians sitting on clouds playing harps. The Christian life, the, one of the primary metaphors is of war. We're in a battle. All these doctrines walk together. And those whom the Holy Spirit regenerates, they will walk in holiness. They will be indwelt by a Holy Spirit that drives them to holiness. Let's read verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And if you can, I want to invite you to stand. Here is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to the Lord. In the past few years, we have seen a, a, a great number of professing Christians, especially those in leadership or uh, Christians in, in, in musicians, a great number of them forsaking the faith. Uh, the latest one was Josh Harris, who, as they label now, went to the deconstruction of their faith, deconstructing their faith. And we have been seeing the happening. Men who once were preaching about the importance of moral purity, faithfulness, suddenly living in immoral lives and forsaking the faith. I know that if I were to ask you, most of you here know people who you once were certain that they were Christians. Men and women who you for a long time believed that they were true Christians until one day when suddenly they were, I'm not a Christian anymore living in sin, rejecting holiness. 
Some of us have met missionaries who were in the mission field for a while, or even pastors. And the question that we must ask is, what shall we do and say in relation to these people? Are they eternally saved since they accept Jesus as their Savior? Or are we supposed to be silent and make no judgment in relation to their lives? Were these people saved and suddenly they lost their salvation? Can a person redeemed by Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, lose his salvation? Is there such a thing as I'm saved no matter what? And here's the last one. In the Christian life, what is more important, how you begin or how you end your life? And the doctrine before us, the perseverance of the saints, will help us answer these questions and understand some of these very practical aspects of salvation that we deal in a very personal level. So as we continue our study here, as we are thinking about this series, what it means for us as a church to be a Reformed Baptist church, we are looking at the Reformed aspect. And we are looking at how the doctrines of grace that were brought back during the Reformation. And we as a church, we join our voices in proclaiming the doctrines of grace because these doctrines, we believe, give God the most glory. The doctrines of grace, they can be summarized by the acronym TULIP. And this acronym is not just a summary of the doctrines of grace. It's basically a summary of the whole story of the Bible. The drum of the scriptures is encapsulated in these five points, the tulip. You think about the story of salvation, the story of the Bible, and we start with the T. Men created men good, but men were mess up. And we have the total depravity because of sin. The sin in Adam, by Adam, corrupted us totally, completely. And you think about the total depravity means the, the totality of human beings. Jews and Gentiles, Paul says in Romans 3. Black, white, yellow, brown, red, poor, rich. Doesn't matter. North America, South America, Asia, the whole is affected by sin. And then Paul says that not only Jews and Gentiles, everybody, but the totality of our being. From head to toe, we are contaminated with sin. But one of the most glorious sentences in the drama of the Scriptures, in the story of salvation, is the two words, but God. But God. Yet God. And that's where comes the next points. God had mercy. God had mercy. As Paul says, we are all by nature children of wrath, nobody deserving to be saved like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, intervened, and with a mighty arm, He came to rescue His people. And as we think about these points, these five points, and we think about the story of salvation, we've we, we got to remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not the subject of salvation. We are the object of salvation. Sometimes we want to read the Bible as if we are the subject. It's all about us. 
how I save myself. And the, the subject of salvation is the triune God. We are the object of salvation. And all these five doctrines here, they are inseparable. You cannot remove one, and I'm going to show you the problem of removing one out of these five interconnected doctrines, and the whole thing falls apart. And these five points are inseparable because it's the work of the, of the Trinity. I like what Stephen Lawson says. He, he, he writes, These foundational truths, total depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, persevering grace, are seemingly interwoven together to form one body of truth. Remove any of these truths, and the whole system of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, crumbles and collapses. These five doctrines of grace stand as one statement of truth. And this statement is, God saves. Like interconnected links, if one breaks, the whole chain falls apart. We could summarize these five points as redemption needed, redemption plan, and usually we see as the Father being the one, as we are thinking about the economy of the Trinity in, part of, in relation to salvation, we often hear as the Father as being the one planning. And then we have redemption accomplished with the Son coming and doing the atoning work. And then we have redemption applied with the Holy Spirit applying the work of salvation in the elect of the Father. And then the last point is redemption completed. And now we have the triune God and a new humanity. Man was the first one just to mess up the whole thing. Now man comes to the last point as a new one. By the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, now we can do what the Lord calls us to do. So, here is the outline of this morning's sermon. We are going to walk through the same outline. The perseverance of the saints defined, verified, and then applied. And just to prepare you, we might have three sermons on the perseverance of the saints. Just because as I have been studying the subject, it's just so glorious and beautiful. And, and today I just want to introduce this theme uh, defined for us. And talking to some of you, you know how much confusion there is about this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Another name for this doctrine is eternal security. And there is a lot of confusion about this doctrine. Many people think that just because you accept Jesus once, you're going to be eternally saved no matter how you live. So there is a lot of confusion about this teaching. And I think for us to, to start with clarity here, let's just state what this doctrine does not teach. So the first thing I want to tell you is that the perseverance of the saints does not mean that everyone who wants profess or professes to be Christian, will be saved. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that many will come to Him and say what? Lord, Lord. They profess. They profess to be slaves of Jesus. And the Lord will say what? I never knew you. So brothers and sisters, remember, profession is very different from possession. 
This doctrine does not state that anyone who professes Christ will be saved. And the parable of the soils is a, is a very good example. If you go to Mark chapter 4, you have the parable of the soils. So there are a lot of people who professes, but they do not possess Christ. And they are not possessed by Christ. Another one. The perseverance of the saints does not teach that no matter how you live, you will be saved upon accepting Jesus as your Savior. Some people hold to a perverted understanding of once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved is biblical, but you've got to understand it correctly. There are many people who believe that you can just live however you want and you will be saved because there was one time in your life when you accepted the altar call. The Bible is clear that without holiness, no one can see the Lord. In some dispensational camps, and especially if you have the Scofield Study Bible, you're going to find the idea of carnal Christians. Christians who do not live in holiness, and yet they will be saved. That's not biblical. They say that just because that person accepts Jesus as his or her Savior, now he's eternally secure. It doesn't matter how you live. So, for example, Charles Stanley, in his book, Eternal Security, he says, even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever. Try to get that. Even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation. A Christian who at no point in his entire life bore any eternal fruit would remain secure in Christ. He goes on to say the Bible clearly teaches that God's love for His people is of such a magnitude that even those who walk away from the faith have not the slightest chance of slipping from His hand. He goes on to say the, the outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing refers to a region in heaven occupied by carnal Christians. Brothers and sisters, that's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm saying. And that's what some people do. They try to get the, the last point, the perseverance of the saints, without the prior doctrine. And that doesn't work. That does not work. You cannot have just the perseverance of the saints without total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace. You cannot. I remember one preacher, I heard him saying that, he said, you could not get yourself unsaved even if you wanted to because you're eternally secure in Jesus by your profession. That's the type of statements and belief and doctrines that we see in so many funerals. You go to funerals and nobody goes to hell anymore. When was the last funeral that you went that people were weeping because that person was in hell? Nobody goes to hell anymore. And there's always something that they remember of that person. Maybe when he was 9 or 10 years old, I remember he accepted Jesus and he cried. And I know he's in heaven right now. And the rest of the life, a life of sin, iniquity. Never showing fruit of salvation. Oh, but he's in heaven. He prayed the prayer. He was baptized. 
So, brothers and sisters, all these doctrines walk together. And those whom the Holy Spirit regenerates, they will walk in holiness. They will be indwelt by a Holy Spirit that drives them to holiness. How about Judas? How about Demas in 2 Timothy 4? How about Hermanaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2? And many others who appear to be saved, but they fell away. The Bible is clear. Some of them, they show themselves to be either deceived or deceivers. And that's what we see in churches. I have met people who willingly deceive others by professing to be Christians to gain something from the church. So many people, because they know that they're coming to church and they will be gracious, generous, loving, merciful people, so they claim themselves to be Christians to do what? To gain, get things, use the church. And then suddenly you hear about the person, but he, the, the, the lady was so sweet, she was with us for a few years. And now, look at her life. Yeah, she was with us because she knew she could use us. And there are others who are self-deceived. Many of those who Jesus says, they will say, Lord, Lord, they were self-deceived. Made by emotionalism, sentimentalism, there were tears, but those tears were just momentary. We're not a long life shedding of tears, crying out to God and rejecting sin. So let us define. We saw what it is not. Let's define what the perseverance of the saints is. It says that all the elect of the Father for whom Christ died and the Spirit applied the work of salvation. And we've got to remember now the Holy Spirit is bringing that person to a new life. A new life. That's what's the problem with that preacher's statement. That even if you wanted to lose your salvation, you'd not lose. The problem is when you understand that the Holy Spirit changed your life, changed your will, you will never want to lose your salvation. No one who was blind and suddenly sees wants you go back and be blind again. So no one who the Lord changes the heart and the will will want to suddenly go back to hell. I like what John Frame says. He defines very simply. He says, perseverance simply means that those who are truly regenerated in saving union with Christ cannot lose their salvation. That's important. Saving union with Christ. You know when somebody is united to Christ. You know when someone is in Christ because they resemble Christ. He says, Scripture teaches us that everyone who is effectually called regenerated, converted, justified, adopted, and sanctified by God, will surely persevere to the end. And that's how the Reformers labeled this doctrine as perseverantia sanctorum, the perseverance of the saints. The word perseverance derives from the Latin that means to persist in a course of action, an attitude in spite of opposition, to continue last, in the midst of opposition. So you keep under the pressure, the opposition, the affliction, and you keep moving. The same thing with the Greek word for perseverance that we find in the New Testament. Hupomoneo, hupomoneo, the verb. 
speaks of the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It speaks of endurance. The endurance of the saints. They keep pressing on. And this is a biblical term. We find that in Revelation 13.10. Look at the. Here's a call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Right there, the perseverance of the saints. Or Revelation 14.12. Here's a call for the perseverance of the saints. Those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. So it's a beautiful word, perseverance of the saints. It's a beautiful word. Because captures the life of the Christian, the necessity of sanctification, the war that we are in, this pressure that we have, and we keep moving, we keep loving Christ, we keep walking with Christ. Robert Lathan, he says, the word perseverance conjures the, the idea of struggle against a variety of obstacles. And he quotes the amazing grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares. He says, a host of enemies are ranged against us, there is the world with its insidious attractions and subtle temptations. And he says, closer to home, we battle against the flesh. Even if we were to withdraw into the desert like the Egyptian monks and thus avoid the lure of the surrounding culture, we would carry with us the remaining bias towards sin. And then he says, lurking in the background too is the devil and the host of weakness against which our warfare is waged. From general suffering, the lot of all in a fallen world, to overt persecution for being a follower of Christ, together with temptations to sin, we face a legion of obstacles. Amen? That's the Christian life. That's why the Bible calls us to fight the fight. Be watchful. The, the Christian life is never painted in the, in the Scriptures as a vacation. We love vacation. Vacations are wonderful. Right? But that's not how the life of the Christian is painted. The, the Christian life is never painted as Christians sitting on clouds playing harps. The Christian life, the, one of the primary metaphors is of war. We're in a battle. Jude, in his letter, that's all about contending, fighting for the faith. Not faith, the faith is the true gospel. He says... But you, beloved, you saints, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying the Holy Spirit, here's the main command. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our responsibility. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? By sitting under sound teaching. Look how he says, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, congregational prayer, praying fervently as a church, and then waiting for the Lord Jesus to come, longing for the coming of Christ. And then he says, Now to him who is able to do what? To keep you. So we keep ourselves in his love. Why? Because he is keeping us. Paul says to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Then he says, persist in this, for by doing so, you will uh, save both yourself and your listeners. Here's how God, the means of God to bring the final salvation. Timothy's perseverance in God's means is God's means of his work to complete the salvation of his people. 
I like what Thomas Reiner says. He says, salvation is ultimately of the Lord, for it's His work. And yet the actions of human beings are significant, especially talk about the new humanity in Christ. And crucial as well. Timothy's faithfulness is necessary for him to be saved. And for his faithfulness, and his faithfulness plays a role in the salvation of others. On the other hand, such faithfulness in the life of Timothy is ultimately and finally due to a God's work in his life. Both of these strands must be held together in the right order to grasp Paul's theology. So you see, the salvation is not for those who prayed a prayer once. It's not for those who sign a card once, but it's for those who persevere, endure the hardships, walk in holiness. Glorification, glorification is for those who persevere in sanctification. There is no glorification for those without sanctification. The Lord Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I will tell you, will seek to enter, will not be able. And He can commend us because we, we are a new creation in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. The author of Hebrews says that we must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we see this beautiful word, perseverance. The perseverance of the saints. Perseverance encapsulates the Christian life. Once Christ works in us through His Spirit, we are empowered to persevere. But what about the word saints? Now we have the word saints. In the Roman Catholic Church, there are just a very small group of people who can be considered saints. In the Bible, saints are all those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. The word saint, you have the Greek hagios, especially coming from the Hebrew kadosh, it means to be consecrated or devoted to the Lord. That's the meaning of holiness. Something that has been devoted, consecrated to the Lord. So that's the perseverance of those who are consecrated and devoted to the Lord. If people are not devoted to God, to the gospel, to His people, to His holiness, they have nothing to do with this biblical teaching. I like how the 1689 says about the saints. Define saints as those whom God has accepted in the beloved. Look at that. Effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit. To these people God begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. Amen? Jesus is the Holy One. We can change holy to saint. He is the true saint, the true Holy One. And all those who are in Jesus, the Holy One, become sanctified, devoted, consecrated to God, just like He is. In John chapter 10, I want you to open your Bibles there, John chapter 10. And here Jesus is going to tell us a beautiful declaration of who the saints are and the assurance that they have. So He says in John chapter 10, Starting verse 26, but you, talking to the religious leaders of Israel, but you, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Meaning, my sheep believes. The saints believe. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And look at that. The sheep has what? Eternal life. I give them eternal, not temporal, 
eternal life. You cannot lose eternal life. <laughs> it's eternal. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So the saints here, you can transfer to the sheep or the sheep are the saints. And those are the ones who have the assurance of salvation. And the saints are described by Jesus. Look at that. The saints are those who believe in Christ. Not the ones who believed in the past once, but those who believe. What is to believe in Jesus? Do you remember? To embrace, to cling. Amen. Jesus is my all in all. He is my righteousness. The sheep, the saints are those who have a lifelong pattern of embracing Jesus and turning their back to sin. Faith and repentance walk together. Not only that, they are known by Jesus. They are loved by Jesus. There is a covenantal love. The saints or the sheep, they hear Jesus' voice. They long to come to the church to hear the preaching of the word they love. And to hear implies obedience. They obey the word. They are not just listeners. They are doers of the word. And they follow Jesus. They take the... They take their crosses and they follow Jesus through the painful road of suffering and affliction. So if people want to embrace this once saved, always saved, you've got to make sure that they are true sheep. And they're following this description of Christ. It's to these people that Jesus gives eternal life and eternal security and eternal assurance that no one can snatch them. Three scholars, they have a book, and they write the following. Stu, Thomas, and Quinn, they say, The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not maintain that all who profess the Christian faith are certain of heaven. It's saints, those who are set apart by the Spirit, who persevere to the end. It's believers, those who are given true living faith in Christ, who are secure and safe in Him. Many who profess to believe fall away, but they do not fall away from grace, for they were never in grace. Brothers and sisters, every child of God will come home. All the heavenly births that take place on earth, think about the number of people who are born again by God. The same number will match the number of arrival in heaven. There is not... More people born of God on earth and less people arriving in heaven. And there is not more people arriving in heaven with less people being born of God on earth. There is a perfect, perfect number. God doesn't lose any of His. Amen? So other names for this beautiful doctrine, we have the preservation of the saints. It's also known as the preservation of the saints. And this title emphasizes what? God preserving His people. The preservation of the saints implies that God is the one who preserves His people. Another name is eternal security. The one who is chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit is eternally safe in the arms of God. This title, eternal security, reminds us that we have eternal life. Not temporal life. Eternal life. Eternally secure. Eternal security is also known as once saved, always saved. And a lot of people misuse that, but it is true. 
once saved, always saved. Notice that's not once you came to the altar call, always saved. It's not once you prayed a prayer, you're always saved. It's not once you're water baptized, always saved. It's once what? Saved. And what does it mean that you're saved? You had a marvelous, undeniable work of God in your life. And that work continues until the end. So there are the different terms. And they're all beautiful. And some people say, oh, I don't like perseverance of the saints. I prefer preservation of the saints. That's okay, but all these terms work together. You cannot just emphasize one. Amen? So I have heard so many people, I, I don't like perseverance of the saints because then it's talk too much about Christians. But you've got to understand that there are three other points prior to this emphasizing the work of God in us. God preserves His people by uniting them to Christ and giving them the Holy Spirit that empowers the saints to persevere until the end. So we cannot separate. They're all together. God preserves us, and by His preservation, we persevere. Joe Beeky says, The preserving activity of God undergirds the saints' perseverance. He keeps them in the faith. He preserves them from straying and ultimately perfects them. We may be confident that God will finish the work of grace He has begun in us. Believers are preserved through Christ's intercession and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Perseverance itself, however, is the saint's lifelong activity. Confessing Christ as Savior, bringing forth the fruits of grace, enduring to the end. Saints do this, of course, only because of the preserving activity of God at work in them. Even so, Perseverance includes, but extends beyond preservation. So let us keep these two together. It's very important to keep God's preserving, the Christian's perseverance, God's sovereignty, the Christian's responsibility, especially in this season that's called already but not yet. That's so important. We have this glorious inauguration, but has not been consummated, the work of salvation. And God is working us in His wisdom, and it's beyond our understanding. Why doesn't He save us and take us straight to heaven, right? Why doesn't He save us and just take us out of here? Why is there this lifelong process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ? And that's the means that He used to bring us home. The Bible speaks often about the necessity of the Christians to persevere. So Jesus says, And you be hated by all for my name's sake. But look how He says, But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. But wait, I thought that Jesus already saved us. Amen. Or Hebrews 10.36 You have need to perseverance. You have the need of perseverance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And we've got to keep in mind that salvation has a past, a present, and a future aspect. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And you cannot ignore these aspects that are in the Bible. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved of the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. 
We have already been saved. The work of Christ is completed. And we will be saved when His work is brought to consummation. And that's very important, brothers and sisters. They're already and not yet. And these three aspects of our salvation, all under God's sovereignty. In Jude, let me move to Jude here. As we saw earlier, he says, But you, beloved, listen to this, keep yourselves in the love of God. What is that? The man's responsibility, the saint's responsibility. That's our duty. And the Lord is commanding us because He enables us to do that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then He says, Now to Him who is able to do what? To keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So we have this beautiful aspect of God's sovereignty and the Christian's responsibility. We are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill what God is commanding us. By His grace. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Look at that. Grace doesn't make us lazy. Grace empowers us to work. I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. What? What is the tense here? The verb tense. Past. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then there is the promise to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Wait a second, are we already heirs? Yes, but not yet. That's Romans chapter 8. We are still waiting. Are we already adopted? But there is a consummation of our adoption. Amen? That's what Peter is telling us. But there is still an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Look at that. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through a faith. He's guarding us, empowering us through our faith. The lifestyle of continually clinging to Christ and repenting for our sins. That's how He preserves us. He preserves us by empowering us to do what He commands us to do. And that's where some people get really, really upset is when you come to the warnings in the Bible. We have threats and warnings in the New Testament. That's why I have a hard time with that dichotomy of law and gospel. The law is judgment. The gospel is grace. As if there was no grace in the law and as if there is no threat and warnings in the gospel. The gospels have a lot of warnings and threats and judgments. And the warnings are very important, brothers and sisters. We don't ignore the warnings. The warnings are God's means to complete the work of salvation. When we were first saved, we were saved because we took heed of the warning and the threat. We saw the glory of Jesus and we also saw the bad news of God's wrath. Nobody's saved by just good news. 
you have bad news for the good news to be good news. So there is the threat, the warning, run to Christ, embrace Jesus, or you will be eternally destroyed. So think about for our initial salvation, there was the threat, the warning, the judgment, and the promise, the assurance of salvation. That was in our initial salvation, amen? We were saved by beholding the ugliness and the fear of the wrath of God, and also the beauty that we have a Christ who saves us, who loves us. Assurance, promise, and threat and warnings. That's how we came to Christ. And that's how we continue our journey to Christ. That's why we need the warnings. So, for example, I had a wonderful question from Alyssa and Sean. Oh, we were reading Romans, and then you come to Romans 11, you have all those strange warnings, but are we not saved? What do we do with that? We take heed of the warnings. And the warnings are real. And as I read Hebrews, as I read the warnings in the Bible, that draws me to my knees and says, Lord, save me, help me. So the warnings are very important, brothers and sisters. Spurgeon said, what if those cautions and warnings are the means in the hand of God of keeping His people from wondering? What if they are used to excite a holy fear in the minds of His children and so become the means of preventing the evil which they denounce? And we have, I think, a beautiful picture of this in Acts chapter 27. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. And this story illustrates, even though it's a, in the natural realm, that illustrates the spiritual aspect. You remember that it's when Paul is sailing to Rome and he gets into a shipwreck. Do you remember that story? If you don't remember, just look at Acts 27. It's right there. And Paul, look at verses 9 and 10. Paul warned the sailors about the dangers. Oh, you guys are out of your minds doing that. At this time, and then a tempestuous wind struck the ship. Look at verses 14 and 18. Violently storm tossed the ship. And look at verse 20. All hope of being saved was last abandoned. We are destroyed. We are going to die here. Then an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and announces the good news that they will live despite the storm. That's a promise, a promise of salvation, certainty. You will live. You will live. I will save you guys because I need to bring Paul to his destination. That's in the physical realm. But in the midst of the panic and chaos, look at verse 31. The sailors were trying to escape the ship. And Paul tells them, look at the warning. Unless this man stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. But wait a second, God just said this, that you're all going to be saved. And now there is a warning. God used the warnings as means to accomplish. Amen? So that's what's taking place here. And then look at verse 44. So they take heed of the warning. There's the promise, there's the threat, the warning. And look at verse 44. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. And as we sail, brothers and sisters, as we sail through this life, we face many dangers, toil, snares, storms tossing our ship, and there are warnings. Stay firm. 
Stay firm. And there's the promise, the comfort. You will reach there. I'm with you always. And the warnings and the, and the, and the comforting promises are used in the life of the Christian to do what? The warnings prevent us from laziness. There, is a, there are warnings and they're serious. Lord, help me. I don't want to walk in laziness. I need to walk in holiness. The warnings and the threats keep us awake. And the promises that you will be there. I'm with you. No one can take you out of my hands. Empower us. Give us comfort during the storm. He is with me. He will keep holding me fast. Amen? So don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. No stopping now. We are almost home. That promised land is calling. We're almost home. Amen? So just you finish one more and then we're done. The perseverance of the saints in union with Christ. That's so vital, brothers and sisters, to understand how this doctrine is inseparable from the previous points and those who are redeemed by Christ, those who are bought by Jesus, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they're brought into union with Christ Jesus. By faith, we are united with Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are saints in Christ. That's the only way to be a saint, is to be in Christ. And Paul says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says in Colossians 3 that we are hidden with Christ. We are in Christ. We are in His grip. Our names are engraved in His breastplate. We are justified in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. So that's so crucial to understand our union with Christ. Christ Jesus, He persevered to the end. Amen? That's what the author of Hebrews is telling his, the church. Keep persevering. Keep looking to Christ because He persevered to the end. Jesus, He ran the race set before Him, persevering through the pain and the shame. Think about Jesus, loved by the Father, endowed with the Holy Spirit above all measure. He pressed on and finished. He loved His own to the end. Why is it important? Because those who are in Christ will do uh, the same as the head has done. If the head of the body persevere to the end, those who are in Christ will not be amputated. Christ doesn't have an amputated body. All those who are in His body will follow Him, will persevere to the end, just like He did. The 1689 says, and I think it's beautiful how they put it, says, Though many storms and floods arise and beat against the saints, they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they're fastened upon. And who is the rock? The Lord Jesus. Paul Wolf says, We may be reassured that Christ, who persevered, Christ Jesus, who persevered to the end of His earthly mission, will also persevere in His heavenly ministry at His Father's right hand. It's not like Jesus persevered on earth and now that He's a high priest and He's supposed to be interceding for us, He's going to suddenly stop. He's going to persevere to the end, praying, guarding His people. Amen? So He says, and I think it's really good, He says, it's an aspect of our perseverance in union. It's an aspect of our perseverance in union with Christ that we persevere like Jesus Christ. 
No, the perseverance is not identical. He pressed on, he persevered as the Redeemer. We persevere as redeemed. But it's certainly a Christ-like steadfastness that the Holy Spirit works in us and brings out of us. We continue with God's people because Christ continues with us first. Amen? It's amazing that this doctrine was considered as heresy by the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent. They considered the doctrine of eternal security, assurance of salvation, a heresy. The Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent said that anyone claiming the assurance of salvation was condemned to hell. Further, the council insisted that people lose their justifying grace of God, that is, they lose their salvation when they commit mortal sin. And that's the problem of trying to divide, break the points that are so beautifully united in Christ. So to finish, Jobik says, the Father preserves in loving us. I mean, the Father perseveres in loving us. The Son perseveres in interceding for us. And the Spirit perseveres in abiding with us and working in us. God promises His own, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then He says, Thus, when we lack assurance, look at that, when we lack assurance, the responsibility is whose? Ours. No enemy can keep us out of heaven, but we may well keep heaven out of our hearts by sinning against God. They cannot keep us out of there. Sometimes we lose the assurance because we are not being heavily minded of what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. So brothers and sisters, that's a marvelous doctrine. It's a beautiful doctrine. Those whom God saved... He saved the uttermost. And those whom He saved, He continues in the work of saving them until the final glorification. Turn with me, and that's the last illustration of this God-exalting doctrine in the book of Acts, once again. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. We see in verses 12 through 22 that there's a plot to kill Paul. But he needs to reach to his destination. He needs to reach Rome. And God will preserve him until he reaches his destination. Nothing will take place and destroy God's plan. So, once they find out about the plot to kill Paul, look at verse 23. Then he, referring to the, the governor there, the council, they, then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. I also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Brothers and sisters, that's a picture of our journey. That journey was not easy for Paul. 
He was going through many dangers and toils and snares as he's traveling that journey. But he was what? Protected. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. In a very similar manner, our triune God protects us and surrounds us until we arrive safely at our destination that is heaven. We are escorted by the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, angels, and the church until we safely arrive home. No one will harm us or destroy us. Because the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, His angels, His people are coming alongside and escorting us to the final destination. And then when we arrive there, we're going to be able to smilingly tell the Lord, I fought the good fight that you gave me. I ran the race. I finished the task. Yet, not I, but you in me. Amen. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this marvelous doctrine. Lord, help us. Help us to apply that correctly into our lives. Lord, there are some here who have been struggling with the certainty of their salvation. Lord, if they are your children, I pray that they would help to understand that we are safe, secure in you. There is absolutely no scheme of man, no power of hell that can take us out of your hands. Maybe some of your children are lacking assurance because of lack of holiness. I pray that your Holy Spirit will wake them up to walk in holiness. Persevere under trial. Endure the hardships of this life. Lord, for those here who do not know you, the only assurance that they have is of wrath to come. And today is the day of salvation. Your arms are open. I pray that those who are here don't, don't know, they don't know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit be opening their eyes, changing their feet, and empowering them to run to Jesus Christ, the true Savior. Help us. Help us to take comfort in this doctrine. Help us to take action with this doctrine. So we need you, Lord. And all glory belongs to you. It's wonderful to know that we are secure and safe in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.